Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster, it must be said in current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Melba Fisher. Melba is the Chairman and Managing Director of Business for Breakfast, an exclusive business club headquartered in Greater Manchester, which generates quality referral business for its members. Melba, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us on this fine day. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thank you. Thank you, Melba, for taking the time to uh, join us as well. Um, the, the purpose of this discussion is really to understand your take on leadership. And if we dive straight in and look at that word leader in isolation, what does that word really mean to you and how does it resonate? It's very more important when you uh, face the circumstances. Um, leadership seems to be... Uh, ignored when things are doing well and uh, leadership then comes into question when things are difficult and I find that leadership is kind of um, a position someone finds when they're expected to um, rescue the situation or come up with some resolutions to a current challenge and that's only thing the time where you can define different style and, and different kind of leadership it comes out and when it comes um, you're facing a, a test as, as, as of now with the COVID-19. Mm. Exactly right. Leadership, I think it's fair to say, is really being put to the test um, at the present time. Um, if we think about your own uh, leadership style, uh, Melba, um, how would you describe that? And have you had to adapt that to meet with this current COVID situation as well? Um, I, I consider myself more of a strategic and a very collaborative person. Um, I like to work with other skills. I'm very aware um, that I don't possess all the talent to resolve complex issues that you find when you're in a leadership situation. Um, by being strategic, I find that when you plan, you plan for the future as well as resolving current situation. I feel comfortable um, leading that way. And being collaborative, I mean that uh, you have to understand that other people bring the skills and so also character with them. And you have to make a space and room for, for those personalities to, to work together. And I think more often than not, that is more a challenging uh, part of implementing a solution than, than the problem itself. I think you're absolutely right in what you say there. It's important to be able to provide a space for um, other people to uh, really take part in that because leadership is about people because without people around you, you're not really the leader of anything um, as such. And with that, comes certain needs for people management and that's a very very important facet of leadership in itself not just of course in the context of now but in the everyday as well isn't it it is yeah you will find i mean sometimes leadership can get over enhanced when there is a, a problem or a circumstances of sort of problem or, or per se but it, it comes for me it's a everyday practice you have to be doing it every day not just on, on some special day. Otherwise, you get caught by the problem if you're not really used to resolving problems, working with people, understanding complex personalities and, you know, being being at the same time, taking everyone to the same goal. 
And in when we think about your own leadership style, uh, Melba, would you describe yourself as being quite a proactive leader who likes to get on top of difficulties as and when they emerge? Or do you tend to sort of sit back a little bit, see how matters develop and then take action from there and maybe be a little bit more reactive? There, it's a combination of both. Um, you will hear the feedback when you sit and watch. Um, we can't always be doing and observing what's the impact of actions that have been taking place. Um, however, the proactivity as well as building the future is very important because more often than not, when something happens, you call on to the leader to would have seen it or they assume that you would have understood what's happening because they're assuming that you are looking ahead, that you've seen um, the vision and what's happening ahead of everyone. And that probably more more complicated than than what is understood at the moment. But nobody really knows the future, but somehow you are expected to understand and know about it. No, I think um, that's um, absolutely right as well. And if we think about sort of how um, the um, the government has responded to um, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, it's really brought that proactive versus reactive debate uh, to the fore, um, hasn't it? Um, and business is having to do a little bit of both, really. It's having to plan for certain eventualities whilst also being able to be adaptable and respond to changing guidelines and changing circumstances. That latter point, adaptability, flexibility, that's something that's incredibly important throughout leadership never mind now and businesses having to um, adjust to that not just for the meantime but also to be ready for the new normal that's going to emerge as a result of this uh, current uh, situation yes because what your proactivity and your adaptability defines the next you you know um how you respond and how you adapt it it defines what comes out next um, it, it's not really what you project sometimes that what comes out. It's, it's your ability to adapt and execute the plan. And, and sometimes with, with the added intervention of, of complexity of character of people and resources and that kind of, of thing, it, it, it can become complicated. However, you know, I, fi- I find that, you know, with, when everyone is working together, um, the journey is more pleasant. And, and I think that's, that's for me, the most rewarding, I think, um, price of leadership when you have team working with you, um, seeing the same vision, you know, it's, it's, it's really more fun um, executing and going through difficult problems. And have you been inspired as well by the reaction of the people around you? to this uh, pandemic and how they've gone about meeting it because there's been a lot of uncertainty but we've still heard great stories about people really getting their heads down working hard whether they've had to adapt to remote working or whether they've had to go into sites continuously and they've just been getting on with things keeping things ticking over and you know leaders are really uh, paying tribute to those um, efforts during this time yes i have and and sometimes if i look at at what my team are saying. Sometimes I, I walk around in the quiet room and, 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 and I've been in the situation where I was almost in tears about how much passion they were showing, how much reactive and proactive activity they're putting in place. Um, and, and I was thinking, wow, it's, it, it's, it's, it's definitely true that in the dark times you'll see the stars and it's, it's sometimes the most wonderful part of working with others. Uh, I have, I mean, we've only been into it two months, but I feel like it's been a whole year um, because there's loads of small 
um, creativity and innovative uh, contribution the team has put in place that it makes you wonder, wow, you know, creativity is just really taking shape, definitely. I think that's absolutely right, Melba. And if we think about some of your other inspirations uh, now who've maybe had an impact on you in um, your career before as you've developed, does anybody really stick out as somebody who has had a profound influence? Yes, I'd start at home. I start with my mother. Um, I think when I'm on the difficult times, it's always come into my mind a little motivation, a little example that she will show you how to cope with things. Um, the little tip that she gives you when you fall, dust yourself and smile. Those kind of those kind of little tips that, that shapes my young mind. I sometimes rely on them when it's it's hard times, um, and it makes me smile to think of her. That you know, I didn't realize um, as a child I was learning that leadership to you know don't show away, get up, dust yourself, move on. Doesn't matter. It's it's how you respond to the to the fall that, that matters um, and then she was right most of the time and I bear that in mind all the time and it's, it's not been the only this is the, not the only um, challenge that we faced we've had the recession in 2008 I also had circumstances with those in those times um, and, and, and just that the same principle you know get up dust yourself and smile move on it's a very simple sentence but you can literally run a company with that Exactly right. Um, it's all about um, embracing setbacks as learning opportunities. It's either win or learn because if we don't have those uh, setbacks and we don't learn from the mistakes that we do make, we can't really hope to develop them as individuals, can we? And um, more importantly, um, in that example that you mentioned there, Melba, um, uh, mentioning your mother, of course, it just goes to show that some of the most influential leaders out there can be people who are close to us, people we work with, people who are mentors, uh, people who are parents, siblings, family members. And sometimes we can forget that, can't we? Because we associate leadership perhaps with celebrity, with politics, with sports personalities even. And sometimes we don't maybe recognise those leaders that are the closest to us and maybe we should be celebrating them more. Yeah, um, I had a fair share of celebrities and, uh, you know, government dignitaries as friends. And I see that, that they also rely on, on their strength out of example of what they saw and what's been molded to them as, as a young individuals. And, and it's definitely the upbringing of that person that brings out your character. And, and character starts from really, really early stages, young, young minds definitely starts from there um, I, I have a, a um, friend footballer and he's the same thing he's, he's, his example is his dad without his dad's persistence he wouldn't learn persistence and, and exactly the same the same role model so it can happen from anywhere definitely Leadership indeed and inspiration can certainly uh, come from anywhere. And based upon the experience that you um, have, Melba, if you could give some advice to somebody who was perhaps about to start their first day in a leadership role, what advice would you have to give them? Believe in yourself. Um, you you obviously starting the journey because you, you have that initial intuition that this is something you can do. Uh, without believing in yourself, nothing is possible ahead. And when you have your goal, you work on them. Um, there must be some times where you, you think it's difficult, you feel it's hard, there's challenges that seems non-stop, it keeps coming, 
but when you continue to believe in yourself, you will find a way. You will find a solution, and the solution will just tell you, "Here I am, pick me up." Uh, if you continue the journey, so that that's that's perhaps the most you know kind of um, glaring kind of example that I can I can share because in in the same journey I have, you know, it's it's just keep going. I think I, might, I must quote um, Sir Winston Churchill when he said, "If you're going through a difficult times, keep going," <laughs> and that's that's persistent, right? That's just so true, so true in real life. It certainly is, and if we do think about that journey going forward, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program today, Melba, do give me an idea of what you envision the next twelve months holding for yourself and for business for breakfast, and also what you hope to achieve, not just in that time in navigating the current COVID situation, but also beyond then as well, and what the future holds for when we emerge from this pandemic. I'm very excited. I'm really much looking forward to uh, the time when we can start networking again. We have sat and had plenty of time to innovate and redevelop the, the system of B4B. And we are really looking forward to engaging with local business community and globally. I have um, experienced the change when we incorporated technology into the connecting connectivity of businesses. Um, the, last, the last two or three weeks alone, we managed to open new markets. We've engaged conversations and probably close to, to finishing a deal with Johannesburg. We'd revitalize our Ghana market. We've opened talks with India and now we've started just just this morning we started conversation with the golf um, you know the GCC, the golf community. And that is because of the of the facilities that the technology has brought in in, in the lockdown time. We don't always have to travel. Uh, if we harness the technology, I think it can add wonders to, to businesses. For for B for B, definitely we're looking at, at globalizing our services sooner than than I thought. Um, I had this this example in my mind that it, this is going to be a seven year plan or five year plan, and it, it came so soon. You know, two months. That's all it took to open conversation, and it, I have the feeling that it will fly from here on. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited to what the future is going to bring for business for breakfast. It certainly seems as if there's plenty of innovation um, in uh, the uh, the networking space at the moment, Melbourne, and plenty of ambition going forward when we begin to uh, emerge from this. And, you know, I think given how informative um, it's been having you on the uh, the programme today, I think it would be fantastic to um, actually catch up in the next year or so once we start seeing these changes uh, borne out and maybe um, see how things um, are getting on in uh, that respect for sure. Yeah, I'd love that. I'd look forward to that. That would be good. I think so um, as well, Melba. Um, it's been a real pleasure um, having you on the uh, the programme um, again today. It's been um, really, really uh, wonderful. And I have to say, do take care and do stay safe in the meantime with everything uh, still going on as well, because, of course, we're not quite out of the woods yet. Thank you for having me, Scott. Will do, yes. You, you too. That was Melba Fisher, Chairman and Managing Director of Business for Breakfast. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He rose to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for Sheffield Brights 
Tyneside and Hillsborough for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. And that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a 
service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods. Including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility that will be a very positive outcome absolutely now what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this are you broadly supportive of their measures well it may surprise people to hear that that i have been very supportive of course there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK, we, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and um, 
and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. 
So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've 
put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. 
And mm-hmm. those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced 
shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt 
from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.